Hi, everybody. Welcome to the second episode of the Getting Into Information Security podcast. So the audio in this podcast is a little problematic, but I made an executive decision to go ahead anyway. The reason being is that what we talked about had so much value. And so I think the value outweighs the audio issues. So please bear with us in that. I'm really excited about this episode. We talked about some really interesting things, and um, I'm really excited for everyone to listen to it. Welcome to the Getting Into Information Security podcast, where we talk with information security pros and learn from their experiences and how they got started. I'm your host, Eamon Elswa, and today our guest is Zero Day. Zero Day is an information security researcher working on securing distributed systems. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Eamon. Yeah, sure. Really appreciate you coming on. So maybe you could tell us a little about yourself and, and what you do. So I currently work securing distributed systems. These are Docker containers in AWS cloud. And we have a lot of interesting challenges, for example, logging and API metrics recording for these systems. And what we really do in my team is to ensure that all the calls being made to these systems are legitimate and that there isn't any rogue code running inside of those containers. Great. Let's start from the beginning. What was your first computer? Oh, my first computer uh, was an 8386 with 25 megahertz and 25 megabytes of RAM. That's a lot weaker than today's standard iPhone, for example. Uh We have more power in our pockets now than I would have ever dreamed of when I started getting into computers. Was it CGA or VGA or EGA? Uh, VGA, VGA. VGA, okay. Nice graphics on that one, yep. (laughs) Okay, okay. Awesome. And what was uh, like your earliest hacking memory that you could at least talk about? My earliest hacking memory. It's an interesting one, I think, because mm-hmm. it was kind of a situation where I was at school. We, in fact, didn't have, the, I would say, the best support from the uh, the city we were living in, mm-hmm. in terms of having them come on site and keep things up to date, things repaired so we could use them. And it turns out that I had to become an administrator on a Novell system, since we had NetWare at the time, in the local schools. To fix you the had problem to? to allow us to even, I had to. Otherwise, okay. we wouldn't have been able to use the system as a big with. So it was, I, I guess, a, a white hat experience. Uh-huh. But it got, gave me a lot more uh, interest in you know finding ways of subverting controls and systems early on. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then from there, you just started exploring, huh? From there, was it Novell 4.1 or so? 4.11? Yep, 4.11, 4.11. Wow, cool. Yeah, completely out of necessity. But, you know, I think as far as my interest in information security or, or, you know, what really got me charged up about it, it went way further back than that. Oh, go ahead. Um, In my neighborhood, there was a a local nonprofit. Their entire mission was to enable like inner city youth to discover their talents, you know, through business training and trade courses. And a lot of what they did focused around giving you something at the end of one of these courses, right? So in this case... It was a computer repair or you know, operating system installation type course, basic computing. But the perk was when you were finished with this, the computer you built, you took home, it was yours. And you know, at that time, you know, with uh, immigrant parents, you weren't exactly getting a lot of money to buy mm-hmm. anything. Anything you asked mm-hmm. for, you weren't necessarily going to get. So coming mm-hmm. across a computer at that point was pretty difficult. But programs like this allowed people, in my community at least, to get these resources to play with in a way that would allow them to grow their skills in private where they could have some experience to get into things a bit more deeper later. That's awesome. And then that helped you grow. Right, giving me the, the lens into what it, what computer science was at the rudimentary level, you know, and being able to take that thing apart and uh, having a general idea about of how all the components fit together and how they were working. And I mean, in those days, this was probably the mid-90s to early 2000s, mm-hmm. I'd say really the mid-90s. 
components were a lot larger on these motherboards. They were easier to see, easier to understand. Yes. Uh, not like today, everything is so tightly packed together that it kind of abstracts away a lot of the function of what uh, the board is doing. Yeah, I remember ATX cases and, and you know, when was it micro ATX or, or what was it mini? What was, what was the next step from ATX? But yeah, I think it was micro at that point. Yeah, and I was like, wow, that's small. But, you know, we, we had these huge, big metal cases and, you know, you cut yourself on, on the cases. And pretty... Yeah, it's definitely a rite of passage. A yeah. PC building and getting cut in the case each time. Were you ever in the modem age? I was in the modem age. And that, oh, actually, okay. that's one of the things I kind of, I think, shines a light into what you can become within technology is the what technologies were available to you when you became interested mm-hmm. and what were the new disruptive technologies and what were the established technologies. So in my case, the modem technology for 56K, dial-up, all that stuff is established. Yeah. So you know, I can jump right in, you know, buy a modem, mm-hmm. jack in, dial out. Through doing that, I, we were forced to learn a lot more about how things worked at a lower level. For example, to play a simple online game, it's mm-hmm. not like today where you can install a Steam client, run the game, and you're done. In yeah, those right. days, you had to put, basically fire up a server on your end, have someone dial in, accept that connection. Yes. It yes. wouldn't always work. You know, so you had to do a lot more troubleshooting and kind of forced you to uh, be a little bit sharper, I'd say. Yeah. Of how much yeah. Of that wasn't abstracted away yet. I always envied my friends that had multiple that. lines. I wasn't one of them. So what's the slowest modem you had? The slowest modem I had was a 14.4K US Robotics modem. Uh, because once again, immigrant parents, they weren't buying me anything. So mm-hmm. these were a lot of these uh, devices came from donations or, you know, for example, my school was another huge source of this kind of stuff. They wouldn't need one extra modem or something that we're eventually going to throw out. You know, they give me a lot of this hardware to play with or, you know, get a better understanding of. I think that kind of thing really matters, having a space where especially young kids who are interested in this stuff can go and really see how this stuff works and get their hands on it. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I think the slowest modem I had was actually a 2400 baud modem. So, you know, kind of dates myself, but I, I always love hearing modem and BBS stories. So that's that's awesome. So fast forward now and, you know, what made you, it seems like you always had an interest in computers and you just had that hacker mentality where, you know, you're looking to take things apart and, and, and learn more. Uh, at what point did you see you wanted to do this like professionally? Well, in a way, I kind of fell into it, I'd say. You know, at one point, you know, I wasn't living at home any longer uh, following high school and getting into college, and I needed to find a way to make money. And generally speaking, you know, you could go work at the burger joint or wait tables or whatever it is, but if you plan your strengths, things would be that much easier for you. And I figured, hey, I know a little bit about computers. Let me mm-hmm. try and do something computer-related. So at the time, the only thing that, that was available even to get a taste of what that world looked like was... If you remember Circuit City, now defunct, they had a fire yeah. dog technician program. It was basically yeah. PC repair, AV, and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So I applied for one of those jobs since I had previously worked you know, sales for these guys during holidays or something. So I figured at least I knew a few people there. You know, I got through, and really that was my first introduction to this stuff professionally, being able to actually work on the machines of other people. Mm-hmm. And the malware I came across in those days, oh. I still don't see anything as unique today on some level so all the weird niche consumer malware all the you know fake av clones and cleaning that stuff off by hand without using any virus software so finding all the persistence locations and you know doing that pretty much day in and day out really gave me more of an interest in doing that side of things professionally and moving away from the traditional general it support side of things that's awesome so you just got thrown into it huh really yeah yeah 
So I began playing to your strengths. I figured I can do a little bit of this, so let's see how far I can take it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But an interesting story about Circuit City, since you know they are now defunct, so I yeah. can obviously talk about this openly. They had a system for providing service technicians the opportunity to get Microsoft certifications, which I thought was a really okay. good thing, actually. I don't see many small shops, like even your Best Buys, doing something like this. Right. And on that platform, there was a limit of two vouchers that you could get out of the system per employee. But of course, that was managed on the client side with some JavaScript okay. and cookies. So... Lo and behold, I managed to get six of these things. And again, these are vouchers that have value. You can taste it for a Prometric certification exam. And that's what I did. Got nice. as many of these as I could, breezed through some Microsoft certifications. Uh, I believe it was for either Vista or Windows 7 back then. Uh-huh. And then took that as my platform to start you know, trying myself out there in the world of desktop support as a first step because they were asking for this particular credential. Okay, that's awesome. You have any interesting malware stories from, from those Circuit City days? Uh, none that I'm really too comfortable talking about because, you know, people walk into the store, you have a certain view of them, uh-huh. but it's not until you really get on that machine that you see, uh, you know, kind of how the exterior doesn't always match the interior when it comes to people. Uh, because yeah. when you start picking apart how the, this infection got onto the machine, is it persistent? Is it going to come back? Because you don't want the customer returning to the store saying you didn't do your job. But a lot of these were sourced from adult websites, let's say. There's some fairly elderly customers <laughs> with this problem, which is a little interesting to me at the time. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yes. Okay. That's all we I can say it. on that one. We could leave it there. That's awesome. <laughs> we could leave it there. So you, it looks like you started, you know, in the desktop world, desktop support, and then, you know, worked your way up from there. And when was it that you actually had an actual information security focused job like at, at a corporation? How did that transition happen? So that transition came pretty late at, following that, actually. Mm-hmm. After leaving Circuit City, just to give you guys an idea about kind of the challenges you can see in InfoSec when both trying to define yourself as a professional, saying what area of this do I want to enter, and also what does it take to get there. The next step for me in this case was getting into a support role at a corporation just to get my foot in the door. But even with that role, my interest wasn't in working desktop support at that point. I did want to mm-hmm. get more hands-on with malware analysis, more hands-on with security as a whole. Right, of but course. But a lot of these organizations, they're pretty rigid. They have mm-hmm. set roles, set people in these places who have been there for years in many cases. Yeah. And it uh, makes it difficult for people just coming in, whether this is an information security or an IT role, to get that exposure or familiarity. Mm-hmm. So in my case, I you know went to a corporation as their desktop support person for a trading floor, right? And the reason behind that in this case was no one else on the support team wanted that role, basically, right? Okay. These were the toughest users to deal with, the most unreliable systems at the time, and the least appreciation you got out of the role. You'd be screaming every day, you know, traders are breaking phones, you know, screaming in your face, telling you what you don't know, et cetera. But I saw this as a challenge because, you know, I get access to not only the user-facing problems, but also the server-facing problems that run their backend. Mm-hmm. So it was one of these roles where I got to be, in a sense, the king of the castle and really get to be hands-on a bit of everything. Okay. And you know, from having that freedom in that role, I was able to also directly impact the security of that part of the organization. And that was kind of my own personal proving ground. Right. So taking the output of this kind of a sandbox, professional sandbox, being able to show that to the next uh, manager or the next person who looked to see what your skill set is, that was kind of how I made that transition. So my first taste of security was really in that role, although mm-hmm. it wasn't officially defined. 
Right. It wasn't until actually eight years later, or I'm sorry, six years later, oh, wow. I had my first official security role. After consolidating the experience I had in that first desktop support role, later moving to a server infrastructure role, and then a global server monitoring infrastructure role after that to kind of combine the two sides, mm-hmm. it was only at that point that I was kind of validated to say that, yes, I can do this type of work, even though it's not directly presented on, uh, on my resume. Because mm-hmm. a lot of these information security roles, mm-hmm. people, I believe these days, want to present them as introductory roles in mm-hmm. the sense of we want someone who's been doing this for two years or we want this level of skill without breaking apart what it takes to do the individual pieces of the role, which in fact bring you the intermediate to journeyman level for most of the other portions, such as you know infrastructure knowledge, development knowledge, or some networking knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. And these are the kinds of things that I think skew the experience requirement when they're presenting these types of roles, which often leads to either disappointment on the part of the person going into information security and also on the part of the people who would like to bring more people into information security. Right. That's where I think the disconnect comes from. Yeah. We're kind of part of the problem, right? Absolutely. A long time, you know, these eight years, you were probably applying to, you know, security jobs, but, you know, getting denied saying you don't have enough security experience. Would that, is that be an accurate assessment? Yeah, that would be a bit of an accurate assessment because they yeah. often want to see direct security experience directly right. doing this, that, or that, you know? So you kind of have a chicken and egg problem where we want experienced security folks, but in order to get into a secure organization, you need to have experience. So how do we do that? Right, that's that's really the, the question there, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I'm finding, even though a lot of colleges are teaching uh, information security and, and some folks are able to get it off the bat, I am still finding that a lot of people are still transitioning. So, you know, in your case, you were the sysadmin, but you were a security conscious sysadmin and you learned your security from your sysadmin role. You were security conscious and then kept focusing on that goal until you were actually had information security in your title, right? So any interesting stories you could share from industry, you know, any cool war stories you have for the audience? Well, I can tell you this one. It's a story from when I was doing a lot of security operations work around monitoring forensics and you know that that kind of deep forensic stuff you know like receipt to traffic on networks and things like that so it was actually my first week on the job as a security operations lead my role is basically to build out our monitoring infrastructure something we'd never had in place before okay. to detect any kind of network-based threats and then couple those with you know data from the endpoints so you know again first you know first week on the job first two mm-hmm. weeks or so and i started getting the flow data in so I can build some patterns from these to see what's okay. normal basically user behavior analytics. Yeah. I noticed an interesting pattern in one of our remote sites. Basically every day at the same exact time, a number of sessions, about 30 or 40, get established and maintained for about an hour or so and they drop off. And the same thing would happen every day, right? Huh. And it was always 12 o'clock on the dot. So from my perspective, you know, thinking about any a possible malicious and a possible benign scenario for either of these conditions, for this, these conditions, I should say. It looks a lot like C2 traffic. You know, something running on the machine, it's dialing out, making a connection, doing what it has to do, and then dropping said connection. Right. In this case, a lot of the IP, the geographic data, and any of the who is information around those address spaces, you know, these things are like Belarus, Russia, Poland, and we're a US base. So this is pretty odd, right? Okay. So I figured, let me deep dive into this a bit more start looking into what workstation here is during the host and try to figure out hey, who this thing belongs to 
and really unwrap this. And again, I'm thinking this is C2. I just got onto the job. I'm really excited, charged up. You want to get that first, uh, right. you know, that first check, you know? Impre- impress the boss, yep. Exactly, exactly. So I'm pulling these logs. I have full process history going back to, you know, a week or so with every process that launched, who, who launched it. Basically, this entire framework I built out was really proud of. Okay. And I pull all these results, start analyzing it, you know, ready to make up this beautiful report. And then I actually get a screen cap back from what these connections were since these were going over HTTP. It was web traffic. Oh, I see. Okay. So it turns out a user in one of our remote locations was visiting adult websites <laughs> every day at the same time. Every day at the same for, time. Wow. For about a month and a half. <laughs> this is basically this guy's lunch break. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Now what? <laughs> is it an incident? <laughs> what do you, how do you deal with it? <laughs> That's a tricky one. Yeah, in this case, it wasn't an incident. That's something that sometimes comes up in information security work. You know, you see things you were not meant to see. Yeah. And that usually comes on making a judgment call. It does this put the company at risk? That's right. Wow. I mean, a lot of those sites can be infected. So that is True. contradictory. But yeah. Yeah, it, it, that's really tough. You're right. I mean, when I was a tech at a computer lab in, in college, the rule was because it's a college and because it's so, you know, information has to be open and people, the users have to be allowed to do what they do. If someone was surfing porn and a user was offended by it, then we had to move the offended user, not the person surfing it. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was imagine the, playing with everything, <laughs> that methodology, you know, that's yeah. different. Yeah. And, and the problem with, as a security practitioner, we, we get, I mean, we do have access to things and we have to make that call. Is this going to put the company at risk? Is this violating our policies? Does the company have like a more liberal stance? I mean, if that person was subverting your proxies and your firewalls, right, then I'm sure that there isn't, there's something there. But, right. and also same thing with help desk, you know, when, when you look at malware and they say, oh, my computer's infected, well, we're going to have to take your computer and, and go through it and, and see what's how it got infected, a lot of times users are like, uh, no, that's okay. No, that's okay. <laughs> they'd they'd using... rather be infected than revealed. Yes. Yes. And that's, that's the dilemma. Yeah. An interesting topic for another day. So what are your thoughts on the security industry today? Any, any thoughts, anything we can do to improve how we bring in new talent and things like that? Wow. Well, that's uh, one of the bigger questions when it comes to this industry right now. And, mm-hmm. you know, from my experiences, what I can say is we should really reach out to a wider uh, swath of society to get them interested mm-hmm. in information security mm-hmm. because I don't feel we're involving enough of the population, I should say. So in my case, for example, if that nonprofit never existed, if someone had never thought to you know, put that in my town, I most likely mm-hmm. would have been doing something else, probably still in the sciences, but not InfoSec related. Mm-hmm. So I believe engagement is one side of it, being willing to put up physical spaces for people to see that these things exist and these technologies are real and they can mm-hmm. do this kind of thing. That's one part of it, you know, seeing is believing. Something else that comes to mind when it comes to, you know, getting new people into InfoSec, I think we give a lot of bad advice as professionals or as people who are already at kind of a journeyman state in their career and certain mm-hmm. things will work for some people but not others. And be, we should be willing to, you know, open our minds to other possibilities in terms of what would work for you may not work for someone else. For example, the certification topic comes up a lot. Many yeah. people say certifications are worthless, right? And on some mm-hmm. level, I agree and others I disagree. But it's as simple as this. If you have the knowledge, 
but you might not have the education or something else, and you want a way for this uh, to be proven as, you know, hold some water, and you go through the certification process for any of these certifications, you're learning something along the way. I believe it demonstrates interest. So, you know, we as a community need to be less exclusionary by default mm-hmm. and be willing to look at some of these candidates who we are ignoring just for the sake of our feelings towards a particular certification or a particular path that someone else took that we didn't take. That's really interesting. Uh, you know, certification is a contested topic where people feel it's worthless. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I think some people take certifications to learn. Others take it because it's listed on the job description. I think that if it's listed on job description, then you know, you're better off getting a certification to satisfy the job description, right? As in your case, you proved that with your Windows certifications, right? Your Microsoft certifications that helped you. So it's kind of like a college degree, (laughs) sadly enough, but people say, you know, oh, college is not worth it. Well, it's also a a double-edged sword. If you're, how do I say this? But in what I tell people, you know, is college going to prepare you for your job and your career? Might not, but it's going to get your foot in the door, right? It's going to prove that you've done something to someone, you know, it's it's also a very controversial topic, right? I think Apple and Google just removed their college degree requirements from from their some of their job descriptions. And I know, I know someone that was limited from being promoted to a higher architect engineer level because they didn't have the college experience, although they were very very talented. But when they came to get promoted at this particular company, they were denied that, and and so. You know, we shouldn't use it as a denier for people. We should use it as a as an entry for folks. And of course, some have more. Some certifications have more. You know, the OSCP, for example, is a great certification for actual learning and proving that you know something. Right? That's yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is going to be a maybe a hot take for some, but you know, I also have my issues with that certification, and I also hold one. But what I feel it prepares you for as a penetration tester is kind of a in a homogenous environment where it's it's really really Linux focused and really web focused, and more often than not, with a lot of these client engagements, you have you know a mix of operating systems. More often than not, Windows. So with mm-hmm. even you know with certification aside, just uh, kind of speaking to the, the shift from hacking to penetration testing as a concept. Yeah the rise of sites like Hack the Box and others. Mm -hmm. Again, a lot of these are really, you know, Linux focused. And while they teach you great skills, it puts you in a situation where what you expect to see in the real world isn't matching what the real world actually is Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, available systems. Mm -hmm. So it's also a way of uh, kind of looking at that problem. Yeah, that's... that's It comes back to the college experience prepared versus, you know, experience kind of situation. Right, right. I wonder if they've updated their exam because I know someone that, is trying it recently and didn't pass, but all the hosts were Windows. He was able to do privilege escalation, but he wasn't able to. So that that's interesting. I mean, it could be the vice versa. So maybe they, maybe they've heard some of those uh, some of that feedback and yeah. the exam as a result. But all the people that were doing it in Linux and then they go get a pen test job and find out you know most corporations use Windows, right? It's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. So you're right. Yeah, I think certification is a topic that we could talk about for a while, but I really like what you said about that. And if you have any other thoughts, um, yeah, feel free to add. Things just seem to come into mind at this point. But uh, as far as, I think we as people who are more seasoned in the industry now have the responsibility to also make ourselves available to those who are coming into the industry, for example. Mm -hmm. And as far as people getting into the industry, one thing I think they should really focus on, aside from certification, like I I mentioned, because that will at least impress some employers, right? 
at the end of the mm-hmm. day. It's not going to impress maybe your fellow hacker, mm-hmm. but impress at least one organization that you took the time to sit down and do this. Something else that can really help, especially early on, and I wish I had known this sooner, was to reach out to the community, go to some of these smaller conferences, your B-sides, you know, your local meetups or whatever they are, because you'll meet people at various stages of their career progression. And with a lot of us who are more seasoned, we tend to get maybe bored with some of the day-to-day challenges and take more joy in passing on some of that knowledge or you know, mm-hmm. enriching someone else's development. And that's something that you know, you can only really get from a lot of these smaller conferences where things are maybe less intimidating and you can actually talk with someone one-on-one. Yeah. Yeah. So on that note, like what are some things you do recommend to folks who are trying to get into information security, either experienced folks or new, you know, college students and, and graduates? Okay. So I would say for more experienced folks to start out, depending on where your current skill set is, I always look at it from the standpoint of where am I and where can I go? So I've always believed that the InfoSec skill set is made up of three areas, which are, you know, strength in infrastructure, strength in networking, and then being able to do some type of development or automating either of the previous two skills and applying security to them. Mm -hmm. So if you're, for example, a network engineer coming into information security, you should maybe shore up your infrastructure knowledge because some things in the infrastructure side will you know, trigger ideas or trigger thoughts in your mind that relate back to your original skill set. It will enrich both, which will kind of push you in the infosec direction and vice versa. If you're coming from the infrastructure world, you know, learn a bit more about networking and always learn some development, some way of some automation at this point, because yeah. at least today, the majority of deployments, the majority of environments are being deployed as infrastructure as code. So there was a time where your network guy, he didn't need to know any code. Your infrastructure guy, he might have to write a batch script or two, but that was it. But these days, yeah. you're building infrastructure from you know the bottom up with with just code. And understanding the implications of that, I think, is important, especially for uh, this day and age. Absolutely. Does your company have too many cloud accounts? Do you miss the smell of bare metal in a data center? Do you find the thought of spinning up servers with just a click of a button too fake for you? Want things to go back to the way things were? Well, we have a solution for you. I remember back in the day, uh, you know, if you were a network engineer or a network architect or what, whatever, you, you didn't need to know any code at all. And then now the, the ties have changed. So that's great. Any, any particular conferences you recommend them attending or websites? Uh, or any other resources? Well, I would always say to look for the nearest B-Site Security Conference. This is put on by the community in your area. And that's a great way to meet people who you can stay in touch with and work with more frequently, as well as getting to know what your location's flavor of InfoSec is. It's really interesting for me to see kind of the different groups geographically that make up the overall InfoSec community, especially in the U.S., so yeah, definitely go to your local B-sides, go to any local meetups around the networking side, the infrastructure side developments, because you'll meet those security-minded people who aren't necessarily in security roles. And if you bring those people into the information security conferences like your B-sides, you start getting that, uh, what I mentioned earlier, you know, expanding the reach outside of what you traditionally consider as that's an InfoSec person or that's an InfoSec person. It's the hacker mindset you want to distill into what we now think of as InfoSec. Yeah, 
That's pretty cool. So describe to us like what's what's your typical week or day or, or month like at your current job? Give us some insight for the audience as to are you mostly doing instant response? Are you building tools? Who are you working with on a daily basis? Uh, you know, give us some insight as to what a security researcher securing distributed systems does. Sure. So I'm actually in a transition point right now, I'm transitioning out of a previous security operations role into this new distributed systems role. So there's a bit of work on both sides to be done, have, you know, wow. in between. Okay. Um, so my previous employer doing security operations and IR, and it's basically the same thing I'll be doing at the new employer, just at larger scale and with these systems being distributed. So my day typically consists of lots of malware analysis, Lots of instant response, um, well, automated instant response in this case, designing runbooks for our new analysts we're onboarding. So that okay. it kind of takes away a bit of the complexity, which I have mixed feelings on because when you take away some of the complexity, it makes it more difficult for someone to understand the underlying constructs, but at the same time makes it easier for them to access. So there has to be a balance there. Yeah. That's what, a lot of what I focus on day to day in terms of getting that mix right when making runbooks and writing tools that others can use. So my day really consists of, again, you know, instant response, tooling where, where needed to make things easier for others on my team or more accessible for others on, on my team, including myself, because, mm-hmm. you know, who wants to do the same thing 15 times when they can maybe t- spend half an hour, an hour, and then have that automated after that point, you know? Yeah. What's your favorite language you're recording in right now? Right now, I wouldn't say I would have a favorite per se, but there's one that's really helped me out for the years, and I really believe in not biting the hand that feeds you, you know, figuratively, obviously, in this case. Okay. And I do a lot of my work in PowerShell, which is, you know, really Microsoft-centric, or at least it was up until a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And the reason at the time was the environment I'm working in was purely Windows, purely Intel. So it was the natural choice, something I integrated, something that was easy to use. That's interesting. It's very powerful. Yeah, that's also, yeah it is. It's far more powerful than most realize, I think. And, that, and that's something that was really interesting to me. So some of the reasons I like using it, I consider it a glue language. I don't consider it something that is de facto better or worse than any other functional language. But what I do like, again, it acts as a glue. You're able to natively run lots of other languages directly inside it and get predictable structured results. So for example, you can run any .NET language natively in PowerShell. You can run JavaScript natively in PowerShell. It integrates with a number of systems natively from a module standpoint. So you're not importing lots of additional modules that are already built in. Mm -hmm. That makes it easy for people who are coming in, for example, after you who have to read your code and deal with this. makes things a lot easier for them, a lot more accessible. That's awesome. Other than that, Node.js and Python. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I love hearing what people like to code in or some of their favorite languages. So definitely really appreciate that. I think the audience would definitely appreciate that. That's awesome. Cool. So how do you... Yeah, you Yeah, I mean, you know, the fact that, I mean, right now malware can be completely in memory uh, running in PowerShell and trying to detect those kind of attacks just boggles my mind sometimes. So, you know, turning on PowerShell logging and things like that. So one thing that always kind of comes to mind about some of these languages and also the process of getting into InfoSec from some of the other information technology skill sets, development, for example, or even you know systems administration. Because these days, PowerShell is obviously designed as a sysadmin's language to manage your infrastructure, right? But as you start to get really familiar with anything, you can see both the dark side and light side of it. So mm. you know, for a point before people were really weaponizing PowerShell, I was like, wow, this can really be weaponized. You know, this mm-hmm. is coming. 
mm-hmm. because I had that view as a developer. By the time it was weaponized, you know, you're then able to see how you can detect this because you can think along the same lines that the the attacker would in this case. Oh, I, I think see, it's yeah. important to have both sides of the coin. That, that's a very good comment. So. So how do you stay up on current topics? Well, the conference angle is a big one. You know, people who uh, release, you know, some great talks about what they're working on, especially, you know, again, your B-sides, your local conferences where, where these aren't sponsored by anyone. So you're not being sold a product, you're more being sold an idea in, in this case, I think is really important as a way of keeping on top of what's happening in InfoSec. Because a lot of these people who are doing the next phase of whatever are also watching these topics and getting their ideas. So if you know where an idea comes from, you can kind of see where things are going without having to do as, uh, as much digging when it comes down to it. Okay. Any websites you check on a daily basis or, you know, please do you like to hang out online that, you know, you find a really good source of information? Well, for better or worse, Twitter, there are a lot of things tend to get released first on Twitter. And, and yeah. that's kind of a shift we've seen from traditional media to this, you know, crowdsourced information. Even recently, there was an you know, ASLR bypass that, again, dropped first on Twitter. And there's a community around this where you can get these samples many times ahead of anyone who's reading the news cycle and start to dig into that before it becomes something that is kind of out of reach. Because also some of these CVE disclosures or zero-day mm-hmm. vulnerabilities end up getting taken down through a cease and desist or whatever it may be. So, you know, having access to the information security community on Twitter is a great way of staying abreast to a lot of these topics. Yep, yep. Twitter is a great source. And like you said, for better or for worse. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot to uh, dig through. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a problem a lot of us, I think, are are aware of and are trying to tackle actively. In fact, there's a talk about that very topic, oh, wow. digging through the you know the memes and and the shit posting to get to a point where we can actually get content out when needed, but still have the community. Okay, okay, be good to yeah, send me a link to that talk. I'll put it in the show notes. Oh, we'll do it. I think it's a great project. Actually, it's something that gave me pause at first because one thing the presenter on this topic said: we as professionals have a bit of a responsibility to disseminate correct, accurate knowledge because mm-hmm. just because we're not the stage where we're comfortable, we we kind of know how things work. Someone coming in new, trying to get their foothold, especially when it comes to Twitter, they won't really know where to, you know point their lens in this case. And, you know, yeah. again, we as professionals have the responsibility to, on some level, maintain data hygiene around what this all is about. Do you think that, you know, teaching computer science is enough to get started on getting folks to start in information security? Or do you think we need to do more? So, you know, helping community, you were talking about communities and access to computers. Is that a good start? And then hopefully those who have the knack for security or for hacking will kind of go on their own? Or do you think we need to, you know, it needs to be more than just computer science. I think it definitely needs to be more than just computer science because the hacking community, information security aside, isn't only made of computer scientists. And that's something I think we need to kind of get away from as an information security community. Because take a look at the hacking community. You have people who have backgrounds in pure electrical engineering. You have people who are woodworkers. It's it's pretty diverse from a skill set perspective. Mm-hmm. But they all have a mindset that can generally be applied to some type of problem solving. And at the end of the day, InfoSec is just problem solving, like many right. other engineering you know, focus areas. So I think you know the community outreach portion is a good start, more so than teaching computer science, in my opinion, because you give people access to 
work on this stuff without ha- being restricted to a way of working on these things. Because as hackers, we were never really told you have to use this system this way. That's Natively, right. we're more free around how we're going to interact with that. So I think we should let that freedom remain and that teaching computer science might even be negatively impacting the overall industry by leaning things too far in one direction, but not the other, like leaving mm-hmm. lots of stones unturned, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. There's something to be said about teaching kids or folks critical thinking. I think critical thinking and problem solving are just key to being successful in information security. It's not, like you said, just having the run book and just doing the run book. That's kind of drone mentality, but we need more of that critical thinking and that, that, that spark. Well, wouldn't you agree? I'd absolutely agree. And the question is, how do we cultivate that spark or how do we identify that spark perfectly early on? Because, I mean, it's really a long road for a lot of us. You know, in my own story, even after I was working professionally, it took about six years to go from a technical IT role to an information security role, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of my progression started much earlier before that. And I, mm-hmm. that's something I've heard from a number of people. Uh, they started very young. And if we can identify that in our youth more so, we should be able to you know, have that skill set built up in our society. Okay. Yeah. And what are some steps, you know, you if looking back during those six years, those eight years, that what are some other steps that you think you could have taken or would have helped you to help shorten that gap? Yeah. A big one would have been attending conferences or being able to attend conferences. So it wasn't actually, or ironically, until I started attending these conferences that I not only, well, I'll back up a bit. Sure. So after I left my infrastructure role, by that six-year mark to start the security role, I hadn't gone to any information security conferences, any hacker conferences, anything of the like. So I didn't necessarily know what I knew. I had uh, no one to evaluate my skill set against. Gotcha. And, and that's something that gives us a lot of us, you know, imposter syndrome. I don't know what someone else knows and that the whole the whole issue comes up where you don't necessarily have the confidence to take that next step. So I think yeah. there are a lot of people out there who are definitely qualified, but they don't have the confidence due to the environment they're in, the status quo or whatever else. So I think, you know, going to those conferences, meeting people who were like minded, being able to talk to them about what they were passionate about. And you realize that, hey, this is something that can work for me it gives you just that push you might need to take that next step. So it would have started much sooner. Yeah, yeah. I think conferences, I think you touched on something really good there where there's some people that have the skills, but they just don't have the confidence to transition. I do see that a lot. You know, really talented folks. I'm like, listen, you're ready to be an InfoSec professional. So go ahead and, you know, start applying. Just, you know, touch up your experience to match some of the JavaScript. You know, if they want Python scripting, you know, learn that. There's some certifications, okay, maybe we could look into that. But yeah, there's something to be said about conferences. I think for me, it wasn't until going to Hope conferences, for example, that really helped give me the energy. I think energy is really where you're getting at, like, you know, the energy, the the inertia to be in that security mindset, wouldn't you say? That's something that's really definite. I mean, any year you leave DEF CON, you always have so much energy, so much drive to work on your next project because you see that this is this is real. People are out here doing this and that's so inspirational. Yeah. What about the other, the converse of that though, where you as a newbie are going to a security conference and you kind of feel like it's a little clickish. What would be your advice for that, for someone in that situation? They might be a little shy or intimidated, in fact, by all these people around that, you know, say they're, you know, these are experienced security folks, even though uh, the reality is that there's a lot of people 
like that individual at the conference that are inexperienced and, and just looking to learn? What would you say for someone like that that is going to a con and might be intimidated by the by a conference, even though the conference doesn't mean to be? Yeah, it's definitely a problem I've heard um, some others some others mention and I've seen it myself. I mean, my first DEF CON was only you know two or three years ago at this point. And mm-hmm. I think the way they should look at things, the way it should be targeted is smaller conferences where it's maybe less intimidating, less of the crowds and chaos and, and more so information talks and, and good people, really. Mm-hmm. And even before looking into these conferences that might be intimidating from that standpoint, now again, local meetups are great for this because you have a more familiar environment to get to know these people and maybe one of these people will attend the conference with you to you know lower your own barrier to entry right right yeah bring a friend i think that that's probably a good scenario just bring a friend to start off with that'd be a good way to start awesome any other tips for our audience before we go stay curious things change at a pretty fast pace and that can intimidate lots of people getting into infosec a lot of us say, you know, how can you remain interested in something that's basically slipping away from you each day just a little bit? And I think do what you like more so than anything else. Something that interests you, you know, invest some time in it. You don't necessarily have to follow what the news cycle or what even the community says you should be interested in. You know, find your own lane because there's definitely room for everyone. That's awesome. That's great advice. I don't think it could have been said better. So that's that's great. Well, Zero Day, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Really appreciate your time. How can people connect with you or find out more about you through uh, social or wherever? I'm uh, Zero Day Simpson on Twitter. You know, A, thanks for having me. This is going to be a great show. And I just hope to, uh, you know, see how it benefits people. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, this is for the community. So, you know, we're trying to give back. So I really appreciate you coming on. Great. Thanks so much. I'm your host, Eamon Elswa. You've been listening to Getting Into Information Security. Our guest today was Day. I will leave his contact information in the show notes. Thank you very much. See you next time.